0: that uh, was just read uh, is part of a number of passages in the Scriptures that address this notion of the people of God versus the people of the world. The Spirit of God versus the Spirit of the world. And there are many of those. Uh, We tend to turn it into a slogan, we're not of this world. Uh, but the reality is that the Apostle John tells us, they are of the world, therefore when the world speaks, they hear them. We are not of the world. And it's very important as we address the subject we're going to address, that we realize that we don't do this by might or by power, but by God's Spirit. Uh, the danger of the church is that it thinks it can do things by might or political power, uh, and that will ultimately bring uh, persecution on us. Now, uh, the last few weeks, I've been talking about the Supreme Court decision that expanded the definition of cultural and legal marriage to include gender-neutral marriage, um, which, as it presently stands, doesn't directly threaten the recognition of Judeo-Christian religious marriage as we know it and as we practice it. There is a threat, as I said last week, to religious Jews, Christians, and Muslims regarding conscience in businesses and services related to the wedding industry. Uh, That's not a new issue. It's going to be a a problem. Uh, The real struggle is uh, to understand to what extent we can Uh, refuse to engage in activities that one believes to be religiously forbidden. Um, And again, what determines uh, a religious um, prohibition. Uh, So, the biblical understanding of church and state and the American understanding of church and state are often confused. The, the, The problem that we have had is that Christianity and Judaism in its, in its content has been so intertwined with the American history that it has been difficult, if not impossible, in the past to separate the so-called civil religion, which was uh, Judeo-Christianity, from the culture itself. Uh, and while that is now changing, it's a difficult process for a lot of people to think through that. So again, let me remind you of the American view. Founders of this country were concerned about the abuse of authority, both religious authority and civil authority. They knew the dangers of centralized civil authority and designed a government that would be both decentralized and limited by checks and balances between the federal, state, local government and between the executive, legislative and judicial branches. They also knew the danger of ecclesiastical authority. Uh, They sought a system where a free church living in a free state with a free economy and a free press could maintain a balance whereby none of these institutions could fully control the other. The American system as designed then has provided with some notable exceptions um, a remarkably free society keeping these four institutions in balance. For historic reasons, and more recently for political and worldview reasons, this balance is being challenged, and the recent marriage decision is related to this change in that balance. Now, there's a cultural shift that also happened in this process that I want to talk about. I don't have time to go into it in detail. Many of you have taken courses where I've talked about that, so let me uh, let me try to do it briefly. Uh, America is a unique nation and a unique people because it's an idea and it's an experiment with the modern form of free self-governing people by means of a constitutional government with a democratic republican form. The culture at its base is Greco-Roman and it has a Judeo-Christian mix that was added to that in its European form This culture as it then came to America. And there is a default of culture to it. And that default has been generally understood by the term WASP. White Anglo-Saxon Protestant. The default of those people who first came into this country were for the most part Anglo-Saxon Europeans they were, for the most part, white in terms of races. And they were, for the most part, Protestant. Really more free church than Protestant, but that's what they were. And so the default just was there, and the culture built around that substance. Um, and to some extent, anybody then who came to the culture was encouraged by both necessity and direction to melt into that default. And that default was called a melting pot. A melting pot is where people could immigrate and assimilate as individuals, not as groups, into a free society and follow the so-called American dream of a better and more secure life. And in many ways, this still draws people to America. Uh, America was about rugged individualism. You would leave your country of origin you will leave your ethnicity to some extent you would leave your family to some extent you would leave all that that represented in terms of very rigid structures and you would come to America and be an individual and as an individual you could rise or drop based on your own merit at least that was the belief and the notion of that was that you became a individual who would be evaluated to some extent by the content of your character and not your heritage. Now, there were exceptions to that. The exceptions were the so-called racial groups who could not simply melt because even if they were completely part of the American identity and mindset, they wore a uniform in the color of their skin and sometimes by other ethnic uh, and cultural notions that made them able to be identified in some sense as other. And so the so-called racial groups were the unmeltables. The other group that were unmeltables were people who refused to melt. Jews, some Italians, some Germans, people who came and said, we want the benefit of America but we don't want to lose our culture. And so while blacks, some Hispanics, Native Americans, were not allowed to melt and were therefore on the margins of the melting pot, there were others who refused to melt and also were on the margins. And these were what we called the hyphenated Americans. Italian American, Native American, Black American, what have you. Now in the 1940s and 50s, there began to be a shift with the civil rights movement towards this notion of allowing the unmeltables to finally melt. And so you got in the civil rights these notions of what that was about. In each group, there were representatives of two approaches to this. I'm more familiar with the African American experience because during this time, I was... Uh, connected with uh, an African-American family as my father was passing away and and I had been on the streets. You you guys know my background. The Tripp family really allowed me to be with them. So I saw this more up front in the black community. So that's where I talked from. In the context of that, there were two approaches. One was the approach that we could identify with Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King said... I want people to be judged as individuals, not based on the, con- the color of their skin, but the content of their character. And what we need to do is let America live up to its ideals that all men are created equal, and each individual is allowed to come in and have this American dream. The other person was Mal- Malcolm X. Malcolm X believed that there was no way for the individual to be allowed into the American system. You had to come in as a group. You had to come in with power. You had to come in with your own identity, with your own uh, religion and your own social systems. And that's why Malcolm X moved in a different direction. America gave Martin Luther King a holiday but in large part accepted Malcolm X's approach and it was called pluralism. So while we, we say great things about uh, Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King was a great American leader who was arguing for the melting pot. Malcolm X was arguing for pluralism and America really shifted into pluralism. Now that pluralism or diversity approach is an approach that maintains multiple ethnic and religious identities under a larger tolerant society which celebrates this diversity and is inclusive. Under this ideal, all groups, not individuals, groups have equal standing and any discrimination towards recognized groups is uh, rejected. Now... The underlying shift in America from the 60's this push from melting pot to pluralism and we didn't go from melting pot to pluralism we went from melting pot to melting pot and pluralism Pluralism more tied to the secular mindset, more tied to the political system, more tied to the university system, more tied to the public arena and the private arena and certain groups still trying to hold on to the older American notion of the individual. Uh, This shift was energized by a sociological theory that is Marxism. Uh, Marx's theory suggests that economics and power are the dynamics between race, gender, and class systems. The powerful control of, uh, of uh, over the powerless and the system then can only be fixed by holding the powerful at bay and empowering the previously powerless groups until they reach parity. So the way to the future was to put restraints on white male wealthy Christian power and allow for other groups uh, to move into uh, an empowered context. Um, Now the struggle between melting power, melting pot, and pluralism is a serious and difficult one because both melting pot and pluralism have both benefits and great evil. Both create discrimination and suffering but at present people are jumping into one or the other as the way to utopia. It is not the way to utopia, it's the way to civil war. Both groups have zealots who are fools and maintain a culture war that we're all caught into. The founding fathers, I believe, would have most likely attempted to keep melting pot and pluralism in balance rather than going to the extreme of either because that tended to be their mindset. Their mindset was, how do we allow both tendencies to be there without them controlling the other and therefore keep them at minimal damage uh, to the culture? So... The shift from a dominantly Christian melting pot to a secular pluralistic society makes assimilation a significant threat to our children and grandchildren, and I addressed that last week. You could have been a non-Christian in the 40s and 30s and 20s, and for all intents and purposes, you would have grown up with a uh, Christian-influenced worldview, just the way it is. Now you can grow up in America and be completely assimilated into the secular worldview without any uh, intent on your own part. And that's what I talked about last time, assimilation being a threat to both Jews and Christians. But there is another threat that results from this shift. Because of the dominance of the WASP default, and that was European and Christian by nature, there is a, at present a push against Christianity particularly free church christianity but it includes orthodox and protestants this push is directed at moving overt and explicit christian identity and symbols from the public arena to the private arena and treating any such expression as an offense to pluralism and the form and a form of intolerance and hate and you have seen that you've seen that with Some of the Chick-fil-A stuff, you've seen that with the... Who's those guys that make the duck calls? Duck Dynasty. Dynasty. I don't watch any of that stuff. But the, the issue is that if somebody says something that sounds like melting pot America and has Christian overtones, it is immediately pounced on as being hate. That's because that is seen as the powerful that must be held at bay while the powerless are entitled to their voice. We've seen this in the some of the police issues that are going on. This struggle is a real struggle. Uh, it is not a Christian struggle. It is an American struggle. And so we're caught between the fact that we are both Americans and Christians and depending on where you prioritize those. Now, the priority ought to be Christian over American but it's very difficult because in the past American Christian Christian American had no distinction it clearly has a distinction now so we have to think about uh, this struggle and how to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves because the stage that we are headed towards is a level of persecution. Uh, Persecution is a different threat than assimilation, uh, and it will have various forms that I'll talk about. We looked last week at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 13, and we were looking at the idea of Christian identity. I want to pick up at verse 14 of Romans 12, uh, because this continues on from the idea of identity to the idea of uh, uh, persecution and relationship to the culture and the government. These two chapters actually address our issue because they were written to Christians in Rome under Caesar, not a Christian-friendly government or culture. So these are very apropos uh, context for us. In verse 14 of chapter 12, he says, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Now, this passage uh, that leads to the rest of these verses is based on the teachings of Jesus. Very important that we understand this is not Paul talking. Paul is, is in a sense, quoting Jesus who is quoting the law and the prophets, and the traditional view of Judaism that has a lot of experience with oppressive governments in the diaspora. And so I want us to look at the teachings of Jesus directly. They're found in Matthew chapter 5, uh, beginning at verse 38. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to the Jewish people and by extension to us who have become his followers, I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks, do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said that you shall love your enemy, your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, and... And if you love those who love you, what reward is that? Even tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be complete, perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, this teaching of Jesus is that we are not to be reactive and militant. Very difficult for Christian Um, uh, in Christians in America. Because Christians in America are Americans. And first and foremost, we are revolutionary and rebellious. It is in our nature to say, I'm an individual, and if you tell me no, I want to know why. And if I think you're even walking near my rights, I'm going to rise up and assert my rights. We talk about the entitlement generation, but we all have some of this in us because it's part of the American culture that we have been eating, sleeping, drinking, and breathing our entire life. So the biblical uh, uh, command here is that we lighten up a little bit and that we not be reactive and that we not be militant. This form of persecution that is being talked about here is what I will call basic persecution. It is the lightest, most common form of persecution, and it it operates, um, in some sense, uh, as a result of general human selfishness and sin. These people are not directing this at us personally, or because we're Christians. It's just common behavior that we have to deal with. And so, it was... It was required of, uh, in the Roman uh, world that if a soldier asked you to carry his stuff, you were required to carry it only one mile. And then you could put it down and say, carry it yourself. You had to be nice. But you were done. Jesus says, don't do that. Take it the second mile think what's going to happen. Soldiers are going to say, where's the Christian? Will you carry my stuff? Because he's going to carry two miles. I don't have to find another guy. And they're going to begin to know Christians and like them. Because they're not militant. They're not against them. They're not fighting with them all the time. They're being supportive. Somebody slaps you, that's an insult. You turn the other cheek. In other words, you take that. You don't immediately respond. And people go, gee, I was kind of mean to him. uh, But he didn't react. He's a pretty safe person to be around. You see what's going on? You are creating an atmosphere where we are not a threat to the authorities. And therefore, not something they have to be concerned about. But if you get up in their face, and you're of a different spirit then they are going to go after you. A soft answer turns away wrath. This is from the wisdom literature. It is the commandment of being harmless as a dove and wise as a serpent. And we don't teach it to ourselves and we don't teach it to our children. Not talking about other levels of persecution. The scripture gives us different instructions there. But this general stuff, this is the way we we should take it. So, I want to, uh, want you to understand that when we do this, we are showing the family resemblance. Who is our father? Our father is one who cares for the good and the evil alike and takes care of their needs. And so, if they're thirsty, he gives them water. If they're hungry, he gives them food. We should do the same thing. Uh, It goes against our nature as Americans, but it is our identity in Christ because we are children of the Father and like our elder brother Jesus. Now back to Romans chapter 12. You will see then in Paul's writings the echo of these teachings that Jesus uh, gave us. So he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in your mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. All of this humility is not only to the world at large, but to one another as well. Do not pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Well, we'll just be victims. We'll just be... I mean, they'll just take advantage of us. I mean, I can hear people talking, right? even hear my own voice coming out of that sometimes. But there's a very important notion here. And that notion is this. Verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals of judgment on his head. In other words, when you keep quiet, when you walk the extra mile, when you act appropriately and you are suffering because you're doing the right thing, you will ultimately be rewarded by God and that person will be judged by Him. This is really important. If you think that somebody's going to get away with something, you even get more angry. And then you want to take your vengeance. And that's not healthy. What's healthy is knowing, Father, did you see that? You got that one? Okay. Right. I used to tell my kids when the babysitter would say, what if the babysitter tells us to do something we don't want to do? You do it. What if they send us to bed at 5.30? You go to bed. I have given the babysitter rules. And if they abuse the rules, they're going to answer to me. But if they have to answer to you, then I can't do anything about it. So, my kids would go, Oh, really? That's what you think dad told you? All right, we won't be seeing you again. And off the bed they went, right? And then I would deal with that babysitter, right? We've got the ultimate judge who's got our back. There is nothing they can do to us. Because the ultimate judge who raises the dead and will judge all things righteously is there. So give place to the wrath of God. He can do to them much worse than you can imagine. And I can imagine some great vengeance. You guys know my attitude. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. And my prayer is, let me be thy instrument. You know? The problem is, he won't let me be his instrument, but he I've seen some of the, in the scripture, some of the angels who are the avengers of God, they do a great job. I would never reach that. So, you're not going to be ripped off by obeying God. So, we then move to uh, chapter 13. well, we're, we're not to battle evil with evil, we're to battle it with good because we actually heap coals of fire of judgment on their, on their head. Now, there are greater levels of persecution and the, the response for those is different. I'm going to address that at another time because our situation at present in America is at this first level. Anybody who is acting as if the level is higher than that is really ignorant of what's going on around the world to our brothers and sisters. Uh, We are so um, easily offended. Uh, You know, we gripe about people who are easily offended, but Christians are becoming terribly uh, easily offended in this context. So, now, I just lost my... That's okay. I'll be all right. I know this message. So I want you to turn to uh, chapter 14. I at least need some passages. I mean chapter 13 of Romans. Which follows on and now addresses how to deal with the culture and the government in this context. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Therefore... Whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. I want you to catch this. You become a rebel against authority. You will answer to God for it. Because he has established authority. Now what is he established authority for? What is the purpose of authority? Uh, He goes on to tell us this. Um, For the rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For that authority is the minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, because it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is the minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Now, what he's saying here is that God has a purpose for government. The purpose of government is to reward those who do good and therefore we're encouraged to do good, and to punish those who do evil, and we are told to refrain from doing evil. Now, do governments go beyond that sometimes? Yes, and they will answer to God. Okay? God uses government for the basic purpose of rewarding good and punishing evil. There are governments... That become evil. That's a different level. We'll talk about that. At another time. Now. What does he tell us then to do? He says. That we are to. Therefore be in subjection. Not only because they. They can get you. Okay. But also for conscience sake. Before God. That we are doing the right thing before God. Because of this you also will pay taxes for rulers or servants of God devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom is due. Fear to whom fear is due. Honor to whom honor is due. We are to treat with respect those people who are in offices for the sake of the office. Even if the people themselves are not respectable. And in doing so, we increase their judgment if they're bad, and we incur their favor if they are good. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there is any other commandment, it's summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near, therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. As we come closer to the day of the Lord, we are to be acting more the way the kingdom will be as a light to those who don't know and as a final warning to them of what God requires. Instead, we condemn them for not doing it and then when we do something, we say, yeah, but we're forgiven. It's about grace. We have really screwed up that message and we need to we need to fix it. So I want you to look at another passage, 1 Peter chapter 2 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts. That's where Paul just ended, right? To abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, among the unbelievers, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. When the Lord comes, they will have nothing to say, yeah, but your children did this. They'll have to say, well, they did treat us pretty good. We just didn't like them. So he goes on and says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. See the same theology. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So act as free men, but do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as a servant of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And then he goes on to talk about servants. This teaching is found in the mouth of Jesus, in the mouth of Moses... In the mouth of Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. And the mouth of Peter, the apostle to the circumcision. It's a pretty clear doctrine. But it is not being practiced by the church. The church has become American, conservative, republican, whatever the heck that means. And the liberal church has become American, liberal, democrat, whatever that means. And they're fighting the civil war that we're not in. Because our citizenship and our identity is in heaven. So, one more passage. What then should we do so that we can lead these uh, uh, lives of goodness and not evil? In First Timothy chapter 1, Take that back. For Timothy chapter 2, 1 to 4. Paul says these words. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. We have a priestly responsibility for the world. For kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. I love the word pictures of these words. Behind that word, quiet life, the word means to stay seated. What happens in a meeting when people are upset? Are you kidding me? Right out of the chair. Stay below the radar. Calm down. This is going to pass because it's temporal. It's of the world. And our kingdom is coming with our king, and he will set all this right. Then you can go see, whatever you want, I don't care, but that's then, not now. So he says that we may lead quiet and tranquil lives. How do we lead those lives? In all godliness and dignity. You stay living the biblical life. And if you get persecuted for that, you are moving towards martyrship. But if you are punished for being an evildoer, what you do is you We smirch the name of Christ before the world. And that's literally what we're told. If we suffer as a a righteous person, we are like him because he suffered as a righteous person. If we suffer as an evildoer, we bring reproach upon the Lord and the one who bought us. So there is an enormous theology uh, in this context. And... It starts with this, we've lived in a culture that for the most part was so Christian friendly that we could be abusive and we got rewarded for it. And in the 20s to the 60s that began to shift and we are now living in a culture that is ambivalent to hostile towards us. They're not too sure that we do anything of value. And they're pretty sure that some of us are pretty scummy people. And they're right. Because we don't correct our own. But we're big to correct the outsiders. Scripture says we judge those who are inside the church. God judges those who are outside the church. So there is a real attitude shift that we need to take. Now, the problem is this. We are presently entering from that friendly culture into what I call the basic persecution mode. You're just kind of an irritant. So what are we to do? We are to do good so that they think, these these people are okay. You're doing good. You're caring for people. We're feeding their poor. We're taking care of their... They're hungry and we're taking care of those who are sick and we're doing good things. And and somebody picks on us and the world will say, hey, leave them alone. They're doing doing good stuff here. Right? But if we go, that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong. And and if somebody picks on us, they're going to go, thank you. Right? We have to shift our mind. We have to... Simmer it down a little bit, our rhetoric. We need to be lovers of good works and act in holiness, not preach holiness. Act holy so that people will ask, why are you different than us? At the present time, we're not any different. We're just more irritating. There is a second level of persecution. I just want to talk about it briefly. I'll go into it in more detail later. Second level of persecution is when authorities, either ecclesiastical or civil, begin to see us as a pain in the tuchus. We're now really a problem to them or a scapegoat for them. It will happen first among the religious authority Because the religious authority and the civil authority always have a reason to get along together. They can't control each other, so they'll come together and they'll go against the people who are the most problematic. And that will be people who are walking in kingdom ways. That second level has a whole different set of rules as to how we deal with it. Then there is a third level, and the third level is where we become subject to the civil authorities wanting to remove us from the earth. And we have brothers and sisters over in the Middle East where that is happening now. And there, there is a biblical set of rules as to how to respond in that context as well. If we use the wrong approach, if we use these greater levels at, at a lower level, we will have nothing in the arsenal when we get to the other. And we will push them into the higher levels of persecution. So it's very important for the sake of ourselves and our children that we follow the biblical requirements for the level that we are in. And we are in a low level of hostility. And there is still time for us to uh, help. The danger is we exit so that they just have rumors of us. Or we get too involved and we assimilate our children. We're going to have to walk this balance of maintaining a Christian identity, a Judeo-Christian identity in America that has, as best we can, a positive view to the non-believers and a non-threatening perspective to those who are in authority. And if we become political or if we become militant, they will rise up and slap us down. Because if a gay pride group has a parade... The world will applaud it. If a Christian group has a parade, it's a group of haters who are now out in public and we need to squelch them because we are of a different spirit. They know their own. They don't know the spirit we are. The natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God. And many in the church don't as well. So we need to be wise as serpents harmless as doves, and we need to teach our children. Your children are the first generation that will grow up with this incredible assimilation push and the beginnings of the basic hostility towards us. Where it will go from there, I can't predict. These things come in waves and they ebb and flow. But if it moves to the second level, we are way behind the learning curve in being prepared for that and i think we need to we need to think about that so let's go to the lord in prayer and then if you have some questions i'll be happy to talk